I'd like to begin tonight with a poem from a Buddhist nun named Rengetsu, who lived in the 1800s. She was said to have such an acute sense of impermanence that she kept her few belongings in a box. She was always ready to move. (laughs) She was also known for her great generosity of heart and was said to have on numerous occasions out on the streets taken off her outer kimono and given it to the beggars around her. So this poem is called On Seeing Young Nuns on Their Begging Rounds. First steps on the long path to truth. Please do not dream your lives away. Walk on to the end. Please do not dream your lives away. Walk on to the end. I don't know how it strikes you, but when I read this poem for the first time, it touched upon a fear that I had, a fear that I would simply dream my life away, that I would get lost in the pleasant, lost in fantasy, lost in delusion, and then one day find myself on my deathbed and find myself filled with regret for the life I never had or failed to see. That I would never have realized the preciousness of this life. That I would never have tasted of the potential of being a human being. That I would have fallen prey to the tardiness that Guy spoke about last night. It happened to me about three years ago that I read the book, The Great Disciples of the Buddha. And this book has in it many stories of disciples who lived at the time of the Buddha. It has some details of the circumstances of their life, the trials and tribulations that they faced in their path. And it very clearly illustrated to me how diligent how devoted they were on their path. For me, it was a very powerful book to read. I was very moved by it. But in reading it, it brought up the question in in me, am I doing enough? And I found it a really uncomfortable question to look at. You know, we could go one way with that question, into judgment, into condemning ourselves for the feeling of not doing enough. Or we could really begin to fantasize about how maybe we needed to go and live in a cave for the rest of our life or until we become fully liberated, planning all of the retreats we might do. Maybe thinking that we really needed to go live out on the streets and to serve the homeless people. And all of these could be very noble things to do. And who knows, they may come to pass yet. (laughs) But there was more of an immediacy to my question. It was more wanting to look into what's happening in this moment 
Am I doing enough in this moment? There was an outer form of investigation that it did take. It um, inspired me to return to Burma, which is a country that I had practiced in a couple of times, where I'd done intensive practice, and it was a country that had been deeply meaningful to me. But at this time, what came up for me was the idea not to go and do intensive practice, but to go and ordain as a nun and live as a nun amongst nuns and to see what it was in the lives of these people, these people who had taken on robes, who were living the simple renunciate life, to see what guidelines they live by that help to support their own liberation. Having been there before, I knew something of what the conditions are like there, and I know that they can be very trying at times. I also wanted to go to an area in Burma where English is not spoken a lot, but my hope was to really work side by side with these nuns, and that through just being in a part of their lives that maybe something could be learned from this. I realized that they wouldn't be able to speak my language, but I I didn't think that it would be such a huge barrier. And I really felt that this question was burning inside me. So I arrived in Burma, and I ordained with my teacher from the past, Sayadaw Ujanaka. Ordaining in itself was um, a very affirming thing to do. This was a temporary ordination. It was only in my mind ever seen as doing it for a short period of time. And this is something that is commonly done in Burma, that many people during the course of their life will temporarily take robes. Some people do it for a a week, a month, a few months, a year. But it's something that's quite common. So when I ordained, I had the sense of the outer world being in alignment with my inner world. It really felt like it was a reflection of my own inner aspirations. My teacher then sent me to a nunnery in an area of Burma called Sagain Hills. It's a very beautiful area. It's largely made up of the monastic community. Um, It's situated right beside the Irrawaddy River, and as the name implies, there's many hills around it. These hills are dotted with nunneries, monasteries, and pagodas. You know, you often look up at a hilltop and there's just sunlight gleaming off um, the white walls of the monastery or the uh, golden pagodas. It's, I had traveled to this area uh, a number of years before, and when I was there, I had thought this has to be one of the most sacred places in the world. It really had um, just a feeling of people living with a lot of integrity a quietness.
At the time that I had first visited, I had thought, oh, I would love to come here and to do some practice. So I felt like, in a sense, I was fulfilling a dream. This time I was to spend here was to be a very powerful time for me. As is often the case with very powerful times, it meant it was also a very difficult time. There was many different kinds of difficulties. Originally, I I traveled up to this area with a couple of friends who could speak Burmese and could speak English. So they were just there for a couple days to help me settle in, to be able to translate to uh, the nunnery that I would be staying in and um, just help me get accommodated. But the first nunnery that my teacher had sent me to, although it was said to be one of the uh, highest learning nunneries in Burma, Burma being a very poor country, the conditions there were very harsh, very cramped, tight, crowded. Uh, And it seemed like it was going to really be stretching me to live in these conditions. So my friends and I very quickly decided (laughs) that this might not be the right place for me. And so we went to another nunnery that we had visited earlier in the day, which had conditions a little bit more comfortable. In Burmese standards, I was very comfortable. I had my own little kuti that was not so little. It was actually two stories. (laughs) And I had it all to myself, (laughs) Um, which kind of kept me more isolated. So eventually my friends left, and there I found myself bald-headed, in pink robes, and feeling very alone. So it was a time of looking to what I could take refuge in. And then things really didn't work out the way I had hoped. The nuns didn't want me to chop vegetables with them. They didn't want me to work alongside with them because they were afraid that my fingers would get smelly from chopping the garlic or the onions. It was really from the place of generosity that they didn't want this, but it tended to make me feel more isolated. They also didn't want me to sit on the floor and eat with them, so they had me sit at a table. I sat at the table alone a lot of the time, even when there was big celebrations. There was a huge celebration one day, and everyone gathered together in this hall to eat, and I sat alone at my table. And it was all done from that place of generosity. I found that I was living quite a simple life. It wasn't the same as being in an intensive retreat. My day, I would get up and I would sit and I would walk and then I'd go to breakfast and I'd learn how to say spoon and fork in Burmese. And then I'd go back to my room and I'd sit and I'd walk and then suddenly there'd be a knock on my door and I'd be asked to taken away, not knowing where I was going. They couldn't speak English. (laughs) Taken away in a car, never knowing how long I'd be gone for. (laughs) 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 Having to rest and trust (laughs) and coming back and wondering what this had to do with liberation. What was this all about? And as my life got stripped away from me, got simplified, I probably never really did get a sense of what their lives were like 
what they worked with in their own life. But there was an investigation that really came into my own mind. And it was really around the living of the precepts. As a nun, you live under eight, anywhere from eight to ten precepts. I was under eight precepts. And these include the same five precepts that we've been living under here, plus three others which um, relate to refraining from eating after midday, refraining from seeking entertainment or beautifying the body, and refraining from sleeping on high luxurious beds. <laughs> the luxury wasn't a problem. <laughs> But there was a few ways that I found myself investigating the precepts in different ways that I'll share with you. The hardest and most difficult one for me was the first precept, the precept to refrain from harming living beings. And, you know, I wasn't about to kill my neighbor. <laughs> I wasn't about to strangle anyone. But I was really struggling with the bugs. There were so many different kinds of biting bugs. Now, there was the common ones, the mosquitoes. And then there was the bugs that lived on the mats that we sat on on the floor. There was the bugs that lived, on, lived in the bench that I sat on to eat my meal. There was other types of flying bugs. And there was the bugs in my bed. All of this meant there was nowhere I could go that I wasn't going to get bitten. And at first, I don't know if I came with this sweet blood from the West, <laughs> but it, the bites were massive, you know. <laughs> and then because a lot of the bites were coming through things that I was sitting on, my bottom became totally bitten, and I could no longer sit. I didn't have that refuge anymore. <laughs> so in working with it, you know, at first it was just this irritation. You know, I was in this constant agitated state. And then I'd look down and I'd see these ropes. And I'd remember, oh yeah, I need to uphold the precepts. You know, if I can't do anything else here, can't seem to intent do intensive practice, uh, I can't seem to work alongside the nuns, if I do nothing else, I have to try to uphold the precepts. So what I really started to notice that in that state of anguish, if I wasn't mindful of it, if I went to brush a bug away, just that little bit of harshness, boom, life was gone. What it started to do was just to work in a couple of different ways. One is bringing the mindfulness to the experience and then taking care in the action, taking care to blow the bug or to carefully remove it in a way that wouldn't harm it. It caused me to look at my living situation. How could I not invite so many bugs to share the space? <laughs> you know, taking care with my food. The food was attracting bugs. So, you know, really taking care with that. I was amazed at the power of it you know, from this person at first that had this agitation and just ready to swipe, ready to take a life just so I could find some peace. And slowly, slowly, beginning to do it 
just with more mindfulness, and then slowly to feel the care coming in. You know, waking up in the night, feeling that little nip again. And then I would have a little container, and I would just carefully collect the bug in the container, and then in the morning I'd be able to set it free. (laughs) So it challenged me, and yet I saw just how the precept could direct me towards being present with my actions. I also worked with the second precept to refrain from stealing or taking that which is not freely offered. In my own life, I've taken um, this precept in another way to refrain from taking that which is not needed. It still runs on the basis of taking care that You know, we live on a planet with limited resources. If we all take more than we need, we're robbing the planet. We're robbing life on this planet. So the way I had to work with this precept was not in the way that I kept, um, you know, stealing things or taking things from others, but others gave so much to me. The meals that I was given, which were at 7 a.m. and 11 a.m., were huge. And, you know, um, the uh, not the abbot, the abbess of the nunnery would often come and see how much I'd eaten and try and encourage me to eat more and more. <laughs> they actually had a nickname for me there, which... no. Um, I kept hearing this word when I would appear, so finally I inquired to somebody, what does it mean? And it meant fatty. (laughs) 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 One thing to remember about Burma is because people are so poor there, when someone has a little bit of fat on them, it's actually a compliment. So it wasn't that they were being rude to me. (laughs) It's not quite like our culture. But anyhow, there was, there was just this abundance of food. And then people started giving me food to take to my room, you know, as if I would starve between 7 and 11 in the morning, which was the only time I could eat food. And so the food began to stockpile, which, you know, food attracts bugs. So we know what the problem with bugs is, and we don't want that problem. <laughs> so it became quite difficult. And... I have to say, I'm a little bit embarrassed to say, that I couldn't work out the solution to this problem in normal daily life. I had to dream the answer. So one night I had a dream, and it said, give it away. (laughs) In reference to the second precept, it re brings us back to the cultivation of non-greed, or letting go. And it's really helpful, both just sitting here in our practice, how we've learned to let go of mind states, learn to let go of what arises and not hanging on to it. Also in our lives, learning to let go. Another precept that was very interesting to me, and which isn't one of the ones we've been um, 
following in a strict way here, although just the, the conditions that we set up for the retreat are, are about this, but when we go home, we wouldn't have the same precept if we're following five precepts. And that's around not engaging in entertainment. I was there. I didn't have much to do. You know, I could practice as I wanted to, but I didn't have, you know, a novel to read, a TV to switch on, or a radio to switch on. So on one level, it wasn't much of a challenge, but I could see how I kept looking around for entertainment. You know, there was dogs there, and I would sit and watch the dogs to be entertained. One time, as a form of entertainment, I read a Buddhist dictionary. (laughs) And I read it from cover to cover. (laughs) I realized my motivation wasn't so wholesome. (laughs) And yet I saw how, you know, having a life of simplicity can keep turning our minds back toward the Dharma. In that situation, it was no matter where I turned, I had a reminder. You know, if I looked down at my robes, that reminded me. You know, if I looked at a Buddhist dictionary, it reminded me. So in our lives, just learning to look, to simplify. It doesn't mean that we don't ever do anything fun. Sometimes we need a lightening of the heart. But how often do we just do things solely for the purpose of fun? Solely to have a good time, which is just another fleeting experience. So one of the real lessons I walked away from my time in Burma with was just a reminder of the importance of the precepts how they can really be used as a tool of investigation as to how we can live a happy and peaceful life. And doing this in a world where we are connected with other living beings. The precepts help to give us some protection. You know, they help to protect us from the harmful forces in our own minds. Just that reminder. And they keep directing us back towards mindfulness. They guide us to letting go of that which is unwholesome and leads to more suffering. In doing so, they help us to live a life that is based upon integrity and goodwill. In working with the precepts, we may find that it has to be done from the place of great compassion. They aren't always so easy to live by. It's helpful to remember that they are training precepts, that there may be times when our behavior or actions clearly fall outside of the precepts. And it's important at these times to feel the consequences of our actions and to be able to forgive and to recommit once again. 
In this time, our commitment becomes strengthened because we become more aware of the pain of suffering. It's also helpful to be aware that sometimes we will make a wrong decision. We might not see things clearly. But if we keep looking to our motivation, it can help to guide us. And this is something that the precepts do, to keep coming back to what is our motivation. Now we find it especially true in speech. Just today, you know, in the short period of time that you had for speech. You might see the pull of the energy that's there, how strong it can be to say things. We say, sometimes say things quickly. But if we can take a moment to check our motivation, that what we're saying is helpful, useful, truthful, and as a means to bringing greater harmony As we work with the precepts, we also begin to notice that they're not so black and white. On close observation, the lines aren't so clear. At times in our life, we may be faced with making ethical decisions. That could be anything from the removal of pests in our house that maybe are eating away at the very foundation of our house or to how we use the resources in our lives. Whatever decisions we are faced to make, the precepts can help us to make them more consciously. When we take the precepts to heart, we start to learn to trust ourselves more deeply. As we begin to trust ourselves more deeply, others feel this ease and this trust and can also begin to trust us. It can help establish a relationship of trust in the world. I speak now about the precepts because when I ask myself the question, am I doing enough? This is one of the ways that I look, that I inquire. Now coming to the end of the retreat, Questions often come up for us. What's the next step? Where do I go from here? Am I doing enough? And we might start planning the next retreat. We might have images of going off to Thailand or Burma, somewhere in India, to do intensive practice. And these can be good ideas, can be, you know, the very thing we need to do but we need to take care with every moment in between. We need to be able to take or to bring the same qualities and mindfulness and investigation that we've been working with here into every corner of our lives. Taking that same degree of interest, what's happening, connecting in each moment, Obviously, it's very challenging, but the precepts can really be of immense help in this way. 
As Guy said earlier in the retreat, the precepts are a form of compassionate action. And I think it would be helpful to us right now to spend a little bit of time looking at compassion itself. Because I find it so linked to this question, am I doing enough? Looking into our own lives at any time and seeing how do we face difficulties? Do we shy away from difficulties? Or do we investigate them? Do we have the courageousness of heart to open to pain and suffering, even in the moments where we know that we cannot take it away, that it's out of our control? This is all about compassion. Compassion, which can be such a strong, motivating force in our lives, and it can also be the expression of our lives. In being the motivating force, it may have been what brought us here, brought us to the retreat. Now it's when we hear that cry of suffering and feel pulled to alleviate the suffering, we feel pulled to take action, we are motivated. And so our coming here has been a deep form of inquiry into suffering. Compassion classically being described as the quivering or trembling of the heart in response to suffering. It's that willingness that we felt in our practice when there was pain and we could stay open to it rather than contracting. That willingness to take action. Compassion is quite different than empathy in that in empathy we may actually feel the pain, but in compassion we feel motivated to do something. There's a responsiveness with compassion. And often we hold the idea in our minds that to be loving or compassionate is to be disempowered, weak, allowing others to take advantage of us. But it's only a misconception. Compassion is really a very strong state in which we can connect with the suffering without fear. We're able to respond. And we do so by staying in connection with the whole situation. Our response then comes from a place of connection rather than the conceptual level of how things ought to be or our habituated responses. We do live in a time of immense suffering in the world, but it seems like it's not new. During the time of the Buddha, he once said, if you put all the water from the four oceans together, it is still nothing in comparison with all the tears that have been shed through suffering. Now beings all through time have suffered And often our response, whether it be our own pain or someone else's pain, is to shut down, deny, become angry, or become cut off, cold, indifferent. 
Obviously, when we don't have the tools to open to it, we can become lost. We can easily become overwhelmed by it. But this is where the practice that we've been doing here becomes so essential. Mindfulness is a great protector, keeping us present. It's what helps us to keep afloat. It's what helps us to keep persevering to see things clearly. The experience of compassion is often very humbling. It's not one where pride easily arises. Even at the times when we find ourselves quite fearless in the face of suffering, it's not usually something that we would then turn around and brag about. Because when we're connected in that moment, we feel deeply into the suffering. And it's simply that we're pulled into action and that there's no bones about it. It's a spontaneous and natural act. Shantideva, who's an 8th century Indian sage, in his book, The Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, says, Even when I have done things for the sake of others, no sense of amazement or conceit arises. It is just like having fed myself. I hope for nothing in return. But compassion is not something that we only feel towards others, but is equally essential in relation to ourselves. If we look at our meditation practice, there's many times where without compassion, we only beat our heads against the walls. Times when we're faced with extreme difficult or painful states, sometimes we have the energy to open to them. And at other times, we have to have the honest recognition that we're at the edge of what we can open to. In these moments, turning the compassion towards ourselves, knowing that it's really difficult to be a human being, that we do have moments where we're lost, confused, afraid. And can we do in those moments as we would do to a small child that is screaming, in pain, simply hold ourselves gently? Pema Chodron, a Western Tibetan nun, in her teachings about compassion says, It is unconditional compassion for ourselves that leads naturally to unconditional compassion for others. If we are willing to stand fully in our own shoes and never give up on ourselves, then we will be able to put ourselves in the shoes of others and never give up on them. True compassion does not come from wanting to help out those less fortunate than ourselves, but from realizing our kinship with all beings. So forgiving ourselves, being compassionate towards ourselves, and using the practice to do so. Now as we see the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion arise over and over again in our minds, simply having patience,
the near enemy of compassion, or that which can mask itself as compassion, is pity, sorrow, or grief. And this is where we're still experiencing the pain of suffering through the veil of separation. It may appear as a slight contempt for another person, seeing them as being weak or inferior, maybe feeling sorry for them, but we're really not connecting with the universality of suffering and how we share this too with them. There's still an element of aversion, which can be um, based in anger, fear, or grief. Whatever it is in ourselves that we cannot face up to. It can also be experienced as a self-righteous, self-righteousness. You know, where there's still a you and a me, rather than this is suffering, what can we do about it? And when we find the near enemy of compassion arising, we find that our energy gets depleted. We may become shattered by our experience. We feel unable to hold the immensity of suffering. Joseph Goldstein once said a line that has helped me on numerous occasions when I was beginning to feel overwhelmed by the amount of suffering. And it's, only the emptiness can hold it all. We come in contact with the truth of this statement in those moments where we do have deep suffering and we don't take ownership to it. One place for me where I have commonly experienced this is when I'm in a state of great pain and I find myself out in nature. You know, there I can find that silent place of being with the pain and having the sense that nature is holding this pain. Wendell Berry speaks very beautifully about these moments. This is a poem called The Peace of Things. When despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. Noticing, too, if we're, if we're around people who are in pain, how their tendency to want to take on their suffering, as if we could bear it for them. Now, compassion really has to be informed by wisdom, by the truth of things, by the lawfulness of things, to know deeply that things are as they are. Now, at times, all we can do is to simply bear witness. The far enemy of compassion is cruelty. 
It's where we're so disconnected, cannot stand the suffering, and we shut down to it in a way that causes harm to ourselves and others. Sometimes this cruelty can be very blatant when in a rage we say things that we know will hurt someone else. And other times it can be very subtle, maybe a joke that has some kind of a dig to it. However it manifests, it's a clear indicator that compassion is not at work. It's a reminder to look and to see. See it is, how it is that we have separated from that which we are being cruel to. How our hearts have shut down. Because when we're truly living in connection with the world around us, we have no desire to cause harm. But instead move towards living a life that is of benefit to all beings. Compassionate action in our life may be quite simple. We don't have to go out and stop the wars, save the hungry. For some of us, this may be appropriate and called for action. But we all begin by facing the demons inside. The demons of fear, hatred, anger, frustration, boredom. When they arise, facing them with kindness and care. So our practice is a form of compassionate action. And our practice cannot help but ripple out into our lives to affect those around us as we become more deeply at ease and peaceful it has effect on those around us we can find the expression of compassion in very simple everyday ways acts of kindness acts of generosity acts of listening to someone in pain acts of forgiveness giving people the opportunity to begin again. Compassion has a function in our life that, you know, no matter how joyful, how happy we may be, to remember that there are still those caught in suffering. And so compassion keeps us looking deeper into the understanding of suffering and how to be free of suffering. It keeps us from becoming complacent, both in our practice and in our lives. To have a compassionate heart is to be motivated by the desire for all beings to be free from suffering. To move from this place of intention, not being fearful, or overwhelmed in the face of pain and sorrow, but having a continual faith in the capacity of goodness, of the human potential. Even though at times we may fall prey to old habits of mind, we can still bring mindfulness, presence. We can still keep looking into, deeply into our lives and doing so with patience and perseverance. This is a quote from a Sufi master. My life is complicated and still I suffer a lot, but it doesn't mean anything. It is ephemeral, just a part of living. I also feel the suffering of the world deeply. 
I do what I can. Yet it is also very clear that things are as they are. And to have any helpful impact, my actions must come from the heart of peace. This is my goal, to show the peace in the midst of it all. One of my retreats I nicknamed Finding Peace Amidst All Things. Finding peace amidst our lives, our daily life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.